Welcome to Business Lens, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope that if you're listening to this, if you're a fan of Beyond Politics or Capital Close-Up or even Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America, which is where our guest hails from every week, I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast because it really does help us out. Speaking of Motley Fool Money, Chris Hill, the host of that outstanding program, one of the tip-top podcasts and radio shows out there on the planet, is here with us. Chris, welcome. Good to be here as always. It, it's it's absolutely always a pleasure to have you. I, I feel like I'm sort of, um, this is going to seem like I'm going over the top, but I'm sort of plucking a star from the <laughs> audio uh, firmament, you know, like the the, the heavens and sort of uh, bringing it to our listeners. And it's, uh, it's always a privilege. Um, well, look. You're too kind. We're approaching, as we record this, the end of the year, although podcasts live on uh, forever. So you might be listening to this a couple months later, but this is really a good time right now for us to do a little bit of a look back, which is always a great springboard to a look forward. I always enjoy doing this show at this time of year with you. And uh, we thought we'd kind of look at the top stories of the year, some of the, some of the big issues that have dominated the headlines, and then do a little bit of a look at. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. All right, so Chris Hill, what was your big business and investing story of the year? When you think back on 2021, what's going to come to mind? I think there are a few things that are going to come to mind. Uh, Inflation is going to come to mind. Global supply chain as a phrase that everyone uses. Uh, That's going to come to mind when we look back on 2021. Uh, From stock investing, you go back to earlier in the year, something that continues to today, something I just called the GameStop phenomenon. Um, Individual investors getting together on Reddit and uh, really trying to uh, boost up a stock price. Um, But uh, for me, when I think about um, investing this year, I'm going to think about SPACs. Um, I think most people in your audience are familiar with IPOs and initial public offering. It is the process by which a private company uh, raises money by becoming a public company. But uh, SPACs are new. Certainly, they were new to me until a couple of years ago as a way for companies to go public. Uh, SPAC is short for Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation. And essentially, It is a way for a business to go public, uh, different from an IPO. Um, And one of the things they get to do by going public by uh, SPAC is they don't really have to interact with the SEC in the same way that companies that go public with an IPO do. And think whatever you want about government regulatory bodies, um, but as an investor, I like that companies have to go to the SEC and file what's called an S1. It is essentially their prospectus to say, we're a private company. We've kept our business hidden from the public because we've been a private company. But now that we're going to go public, here's everything everybody needs to know. Here's everything we're required to share with all the investors out there. Here's our books. Here's how we've been doing financially. Here are our projections. Here's what we think our risks are. And businesses that go public via SPAC don't have to do that. And and here's the kicker, Matt. Uh, It may not shock you to realize that companies that went public in 2021 via SPAC really have not done well. They really have not done well as stocks. Nearly 400 companies have gone public in 2021. 
the majority of those have gone public via SPAC. And the majority of those, uh, their stocks are trading below where they were on opening day. And in some cases, in at least a third of them, they're down more than 40% from where they were on their first day of trading. So uh, SPACs were something I was very curious about early in the year. I wanted to learn more about the process. And the more I learned, the more I realized that I, as an investor, am not interested in investing in a company that newly, a newly public company that goes public via SPAC. Doesn't mean that some of these won't turn out to be great long-term businesses. I'm sure some of them will, but uh, the early track record is pretty awful across the board. All right, can I overinterpret what you're saying for a second? Sure. So, I mean, for one thing, it's really significant to me when you look across all the stories we've dealt with on this show and on Motley Fool Money and on Market Foolery, your, your other shows, of all the issues, the fact that SPACs stand out to you means something. I mean, I remember we talked early in the year that we did a great show in the Beyond Politics podcast feed on crypto and GameStop and, and, and that whole saga. That was a big story. Supply chain, inflation, we talked a ton about that. And so to me, the, the fact that SPACs stands out to you means a lot. It, it should mean a lot to our listeners. And to me, what it suggests is that maybe it's just a tip of a larger iceberg, which is the role of information in the economy and in investing. And if I could get super, super wonky for just a second, I remember back when I was an economics student, I, I was assigned by my mentor in economics to write a paper and I had to take one side or the other. And it was either markets work or markets don't work. I had to argue one side. I argued markets don't work because of information asymmetry, because you have to assume for a market to really work that everyone has all the same information and that it's accurate. And what we find is that that's not the case. And that seems to me to be what you're pointing out with SPACs. And it kind of connects the dots to the GameStop phenomenon. And a lot of the things that we've talked about this year, which is how little bubbles and pockets of information and even the spread of misinformation can really affect the functioning of the market. All right, am I am I overinterpreting? No, I don't think you are. I, the the one thing I'll just add is that um, this is one more reason why we at the Motley Fool try to live this in our own investing lives and try and encourage others to do the same. Which is that time is your friend. The longer you can hold on to stocks, the longer you can be a part owner of a great business the more it's going to reward you in the long run. Again, some of these uh, businesses that went public via SPAC, some of them will turn out to be okay. Some of them will turn out to be solid businesses that will reward shareholders. Um, but, but time um, is the benefit of a good business. It's certainly the benefit of a great business. Time is the enemy of a mediocre or bad business. That's a fascinating way to put it. And it is interesting, again, calling back to the GameStop phenomenon and a lot of these little bubbles that we've seen, bubbles are about limitations of information. They're about one group trying to drive a little pocket of they think they know more than the rest of the market and people kind of following that signal and everyone trying to figure out what the real deal is. That is really interesting. And I totally hear what you're saying about the value of taking a more strategic long-term view to try and navigate through some of that turbulence. Speaking of which, that's the job 
of corporate leaders is to try and take a long-term strategic view. And we've talked on this show all year, including in our recent episode where you brought up the fact that somehow, some way, Microsoft had clawed its way back to the top of the biggest market capitalization, and they had taken just a very smart leadership strategy in establishing their market position. So you have sounded the, the note time and time again on the show about the value of leadership at the CEO level. So with that thought in mind, Chris Hill, who stands out to you in terms of corporate leadership over this past year? Who are the nominees and who is the winner of your CEO of the year? I'm going to be a coward and not hand out a single award, um, but I will highlight a few CEOs who I think have done an exemplary job this year. Um, One is Lauren Hobart, who is the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods. Um, She's been CEO for um, just barely a year. I think it was February 1st she uh, moved into the corner office. Um, CEO transitions are hard. Um, And it's one of those things that, you know, it's always exciting. It's always something we're interested in uh, at the Motley Fool, which is, you know, who's at the, you know, a business can be great, but at the end of the day, a human being is running it. And so who, who are these people and, and what do we think of them? Lauren Hobart stepped into a tough spot because um, she um, became the first non-family member to run a decades old business, Dick Sporting Goods. Um, uh, has just been run by the founder um, and his son for its entirety. So um, it's always tough to be a new CEO. Um, There are always big shoes to fill. I I shouldn't say always. There's almost always big shoes to fill. Every once in a while, there's a CEO who does such a terrible job. You really want to be the next CEO. You want to follow that person who does a terrible job. But I think Lauren Hobart's done an amazing job with Dick Sporting Good. Retail can be really tough. Um, and she's transformed that business in a short amount of time. Karen Lynch, who's the CEO of CVS, um, uh, same sort of th- situation, has only been CEO for about a year. I think she's done an amazing job with a complex business. Keep in mind, less than a decade ago, CVS was first and foremost a retail business. It was a convenience store business. It was, it was a drugstore chain. And they made the decision in either early 2013 or 2014, where they said, we're changing our name to CVS Health, we're investing in health, and we are no longer selling tobacco products. And so over the past you know, seven, eight years, CVS has transformed itself from a retailer into essentially a consumer health company. Um, and Karen Lynch is off to an amazing start in her first year running that company. And the last one I'll mention is Tim Cook. Um, and this is, this is a little bit of, uh, of um, you know, Paul Newman winning the Academy Award for um, the color of money. It's, you know, it's a little bit of a lifetime achievement award. Um, Apple has not had the greatest year of, say, all of the years Tim Cook has been the CEO. There are other years where the business has done better and the stock has performed better. But I think what Tim Cook has done this year with all of the challenges, particularly um, as the U.S.'s relationship with China um, uh, becomes more and more complicated, I think he's done an amazing job as CEO. And it's all the more incredible when you realize he, had, he did not have an easy act to follow. He had arguably the most difficult task, which was he had to follow a legend. He had to follow a true icon who changed the world in Steve Jobs. 
Um, and so uh, Tim Cook, with the way he has run the business this year, is really just um, padding his resume and making life all the more complicated for whoever becomes the next CEO of Apple. He's 61 years old. Um, he's in good health. He's um, given no indication he wants to step down anytime soon. But um, I think if you're an Apple shareholder, and I am, uh, you're looking at Tim Cook and thinking, okay, five years might be the outer marker for when uh, we start to think about who's going to have the tough task of following him. Well, first of all, The Color of Money is the most underrated, underappreciated Martin Scorsese movie. And I urge our listeners to go out and see it. Do yourself a favor. It's 1986. It's Tom Cruise. It's Paul Newman. It's Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. It's delightful. It's Forrest Whitaker in like one of her first roles. I yes. guarantee you, I, I, I don't want to over talk it up now, but it's it's spectacular. Second of all, I, I'm going to, again, engage in overconnecting dots theater here. And what jumps out to me uh, out of your three nominees and the three companies is that for just for me personally, and I wonder if this is true for our listeners as well, you just rattled off three companies where I have an immediate positive association, a kind of an emotional association. Dick's Sporting Goods is kind of my guilty little pleasure. Like I'm not a shopping guy. I don't, I don't like shopping. I, I, I don't like buying stuff. But if I was handed a, hey, look, here's a, here's a hundred dollar gift card. You get to go spend it anywhere. I'd want to wander into a Dick's Sporting Goods. Actually, I prefer a thousand dollar gift card. It's just, <laughs> it's just an enjoyable experience. It's, it's just sort of fun. You know, and I don't feel quite the same way personally about CVS, but I got to tell you, there are people in my family who just kind of like to wander into a CVS. They just sort of enjoy the retail experience. And I think we all know that people have a very emotional connection to their gadgets, their devices, and they really like the user interface and the experience with Apple products. And of course, some of that is the Steve Jobs DNA. He was obsessed with the user experience and simplicity and elegance, not all of that has carried over through the Tim Cook era, but they have consistently striven for products that people feel an emotional connection to. So again, maybe I'm overconnecting dots, but you on this show have stressed over and over again, the importance in investing and in business success of some of the intangibles, some of the cultural aspects, some of the strategic aspects. And I think it, to me, you're putting your finger on kind of a, a, an emotional intangible that goes with some of these companies and some of these leaders. And I, I can't dispute that they're, they're doing something right. They absolutely are. And I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that you like to see when you're an investor, um, any chance you get the chance, uh, you know, you can sort of kick the tires of a business, interact with it as a consumer. Um, and when you feel that affinity, it's, it's, it's great in part because you think to yourself, well, maybe others feel this way as well. You don't want to over-index to it. You don't want to think, well, I love shopping here. Therefore, everyone must love shopping here. Um, there's more, always more homework you can do and should do. Um, but I think you've, you've hit on sort of a, a, good, um, a, a good gauge for investors. Right. You know, people want to buy things that they like. That's, that's a good starting point. All right. Let me, let me pivot a little bit here. And as we kind of pivot out of one year and into the next I want to ask about what's on your mind going into next year. So um, what, are, what are sort of, let's just hit some of your big questions. What, what's on your mind most of all heading into 2022? 
There are a few things. I think that something that I have struggled with a little bit, and I know I'm not alone in this, and I think for for my sake as an investor and for everyone's sake who's interested in investing in the stock market and, and growing their wealth over time, um, one question I have is how much more comfortable can we all get with trillion dollar companies? Uh, the, the notion of a company being worth a trillion dollars seemed insane just five years ago. It was just a couple of years ago that we were talking about which company is going to be the first company to reach a valuation of a trillion dollars. Um, now we're talking about, you know, we were just talking about Apple. Apple is knocking on the door of being a $3 trillion business. Now, in terms of trillion dollar valuations, you've got Microsoft, you've got Apple, uh, you've got Alphabet, Amazon is close to it as well. You know, at various points, a- Amazon has been over the one trillion mark. So has Tesla. Um, you know, they're close as well. Um, there's a chip company called NVIDIA, um, which is sort of pulled back. Um, so it, it's not as close to a trillion as it was. But I think that it behooves all of us to get more comfortable with that because the fact of the matter is, particularly when you're talking about the stock market, the world's getting bigger. These companies are just getting bigger over time. And I know on some gut level, um, particularly when we think about individual wealth, you know, some of us look at, uh, you know, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or, you know, someone else whose net worth is, is north of $10 billion and, you know, money that you couldn't possibly spend in your, in one or two or five lifetimes. Um, you know, there's almost an emotional um, reaction to something being worth a trillion dollars. Um, but we're just going to have more of these companies. And I think the, the more comfortable we can get with that, the better off we're going to be. Um, because again, this is the best way to grow your wealth over the long haul. And um, that means holding on to a billion dollar company or a $100 billion company until it becomes a trillion dollar company. All right. Let's roll on. I love that answer. That's a that's a big question mark. Let let's let's go on to number two. What's your what's your next big question heading into twenty twenty two? You know, this is this is a question that is important for everyone listening, um, and it's kind of a setup because um, you know my first question is genuine. Like I I don't know how much more comfortable we're all going to get. I know the answer to this next question, and the question is why is my four hundred one k plan about to get better? Because in 2022, contribution limits are going up. And I know this isn't the sexiest topic, but um, this is the best first step for anyone starting a job at a company where they have a 401k plan. Um, I know when I was younger and I was getting my first real paycheck, I wanted to keep all of it. The idea of putting, you know, like, wait, so some of my paycheck is going to go into a fund that I get when I retire? that's a million years from now. I don't want that. No, it was the best move I ever made. Um, So uh, whether you're just starting out with your first real job, quote unquote, um, with a 401k plan, or you're like me and um, you've had a job for a while that has a 401k plan, that's the good news. The contribution limits go up in 2022. Um, And so take a few minutes, whether it's in the next couple of weeks before the end of the year, um, talk to someone at your company if you haven't already about um, how you can adjust your withholding in your paycheck. Um, max out your 401k. It's the single best step anyone in, the, in a job where they have a 401k plan. It's the single best step you can do. 
to save for your retirement? Let me ask you a follow-up that I think I know the answer to. We've had some discussion on this show and elsewhere about whether the market, which has reached some pretty gaudy new heights in 2021, is a little bit overheated and may be due for a leveling or even a correction. I assume that because of your long-term investing perspective, you continue to advise people, max out that 401k contribution, even if we're potentially heading into a down year for the market. Absolutely. But with this caveat, um, even though we're long-term investors at The Motley Fool, we always say money that you need in the next three years, and you can even bump that out to five years. But if, you, if this is money you need in the next three to five years, maybe you're looking to buy a new car or make a down payment on a house, um, take some of that money and, and uh, fund a college education. There are plenty of good things to spend money on. If you need that money in the next three to five years, it probably should not be in the stock market. But if you don't, it absolutely should be in the stock market. Got it. All right. Well, I think we've got time for one more big Chris Hill question heading into 2022. So you choose from your list. What's what's another big question on your mind? Uh, to me, it's it's the it's really about the industry that has the most question marks attached to it, and it's the entertainment industry. Where you know we're about to enter year three of COVID. Uh, which just seems uh, scary and awful to say, but it's true that you know, in, by early March, we'll have entered our third year in this. Um, I think there are still so many questions in the entertainment industry with regards to um, the movie theater audience, the strategies that movie studios use to try and leverage um, the box office, um, the way in which businesses are investing in streaming services, the ongoing slow decline of cable television, which year after year loses people in terms of subscribership. Um, what are the decisions that those companies make in terms of um, pulling back resources from their cable operations and investing them in streaming services? Um, I, I just think it's you know, it's not any one company or even any one part of the industry. I think the entertainment landscape is just littered with question marks, um, which makes it interesting to someone like me who makes his living um, in business news. Um, but I, I just think it's going to be really fascinating to see where all of these things go and what, you know, something we talk about from time to time, Matt, which is... Um, the thing Warren Buffett says he loves to see more than anything else in a business that he owns, pricing power. Which businesses have the ability to raise prices? Right now, I don't think movie theaters have the ability to raise prices, but the streaming services, Disney+, Plus, Netflix, the ways in which they decide they're going to sort of pull those levers and how successful they are, um, it's going to be fascinating to see. Is there any... Uh, no J James Cameron pun intended, but is there any avatar for the industry? Is there any canary in the coal mine that you're particularly watching in the early months of 2022 to say, okay, if they can start to figure this out, I think this will be a sign for the industry. If they start to crash and burn, that will be a different kind of sign for the industry. Any particular businesses that you're really watching? Um, there's not, and I'll tell you why, because I think there, because you know, a lot of people are asking that question. There is a tendency to assign that label to either Disney or Netflix. 
um, which are fundamentally different businesses. I mean, Netflix is all about streaming and only streaming. Disney is a very diversified business. Um, and because of its size and its brand recognition and, and all of that comes with it, um, I think there's a tendency to look at Disney as sort of like, well, if they're struggling, everyone's going to struggle. Or if they're doing well, then that means great things for everybody. And I, I just don't see it in those terms. I, re I really think um, there's not a single canary in the coal mine. There are um, maybe uh, several canaries hovering near the entrance to the coal mine. That really brings to mind the Harry Potter scene where Hermione conjures a group of canaries and they all splatter against the wall, which <laughs> could be what's happening to a bunch of these businesses as we head into 2022. We're just going to have to wait and see. In the meantime, I hope people will continue listening to Motley Fool Money and Beyond Politics and Capital Close-Up and all of our great podcast feeds. And Chris Hill, Happy New Year. Happy New Year.